when I was um, first introduced into ministry, I made a vow that I would, to God it was, that I would go wherever God sent me. And I have continued with that vow all throughout my ministry. Hence, all the places that I've been, let alone um, when a friend of mine come from England, he said, what are you doing next May? And I said, well, nothing, I'm retired. And he said, well, how would you like to come to England and fill in as a locum for our minister who go, who's going away for three and a half months? And so, well, I said, that's entirely up to you. You see the parish council, you see the, what happens. And if they're, they're in agreement, I will come. And three and a half months will be spent in England ministering in the little town of Lim. You know where Lim is? Anyone know where Lim is? L-Y-M-M. No, no. Well, you know where Manchester is? Right, Manchester, Warrington, Lim. Right, Manchester, Warrington, Lim. And then up on the coast you've got Liverpool and Chester and so on. Okay, so it's in that region. And we spent those months. Where are we at? We'll be here for ages. Goodness me, we can't go on like this. In the past few months, you've been studying the parables of Jesus. And last week, Zach, who's here this morning, he's up the back there, yeah, um, spoke on forgiveness of the sinful woman through the eyes of Luke and the faith in Jesus that had saved her. He spoke on the parable used uh, of the debtors who owed money and how they had been cancelled, obeying the law that had been given to the Israelites that we read in Deuteronomy 15. Well, today we celebrate Palm Sunday. And I, I was, <laughs> you don't normally celebrate Palm Sunday here, do you? Well, you might say the service, but there's no palms around. You don't receive a palm cross. Well, guess what? I got one this morning <laughs> from one of your parishioners. I won't say any more. That's all, you know. And I praise God. It's just, it's only a symbol. It's only bringing us to memory of uh, what Jesus went through. And throughout the coming week, we will reflect upon the death of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. On Thursday, which is known as Maundy Thursday, a lot of parishes still don't celebrate it, but um, I've been doing it throughout the Kimberley, South, uh, Victoria and South West Rocks and so on, where it's just been a little gathering and we've had a Passover meal. Someone cooks up a leg of lamb, we have baked potatoes, we have a few herbs and spices, and we might mention a few scriptures and so on. And we have a great time of fellowship over a meal. So that's good. And uh, we'll reflect upon the washing of Jesus, the feet of the disciples. And the following day, Good Friday, we will hear of the arrest and trial before Caiaphas and Pilate. And finally, the crucifixion. However, today, we reflect upon Jesus. And I've called it 
the Messiah asserts his authority. And Jesus had authority. You've got to understand that. It was spring and people from far and near were crowding Jerusalem for Passover. The great feast commemorating the nation's liberation from Egypt. Not all could find lodgings in the city itself. And so Jesus and his disciples stayed at nearby Bethany, where Martha and Mary and Lazarus had, had their home. You know, Lazarus was the guy that Jesus raised from the dead, called from the tomb, actually. And each day, they were, where they walked the 2 point, or 3.2 kilometres into Jerusalem, over the shoulder of the Mount of Olives, and down through the thick grove of trees. The Mount of Olives lies to the east of Jerusalem and rises some 811 metres above sea level and directly overlooks the temple area. And it was this place where the Jews expected the Messiah to appear. Little did they know that he was walking through there time and again. Matthew records for us, and if you've got your Bibles over to chapter 21 of Matthew, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Matthew's account is the only one that mentions two animals, although two are hinted at in John's Gospel. Just a small hint. In John chapter 12 verse 14, Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So there's two of them. Donkey and the baby one, the colt. Right? And both of these scriptures from Matthew and John refer back to Zechariah chapter 9. You'll find that I use a lot of scripture because I don't want to tell you any lies. I want you to be able to, if you've got pen and paper, write the scriptures down and go and reflect upon them to see that what I've said is true. All right? Zechariah tells us, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The unbroken young colt's mother, moving alongside, would be the best way to calm it during the noisy entrance into Jerusalem. 
Bethphage, we know, is probably on the east side of the hill and not in view of Jerusalem. There is also a possibility that arrangements had been made with friends to find the donkey. The New Bible Commentary Revised states that the Lord may be, may be Jesus, God, or simply the owner of the donkey. However, as we read in Isaiah chapter 62, the Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth, saying to daughter Zion, see your saviour comes, see his reward is with him, his recompense accompanies him. And so Isaiah refers to it as the Lord, Jesus, and now I'm saying that the Lord mentioned in Matthew and John's Gospel is Jesus himself. All right? It's just that people have other ideas and we don't try to contradict other people's ideas if we can help it, unless they're in error. If they're in error, then yes, I will contradict them. And I could tell you a whole heap of stories there. My goodness me. And there's a lot of clergy with collars like this who sometimes speak in error. Don't go into that. So one thing is certain in today's passage, right through chapter 21, is the authority over Jerusalem as revealed. His triumphant entry, his actions in the temple, and his cursing of the fig tree. So that's, that's one thing that we can be sure of. There are many other passages that reveal this about Jesus. They're mentioned in the Gospels, in other New Testament books, let alone turning to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament looks forward to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the, gospel, the other writings from Acts through to almost the book of Revelation, refer back to Jesus and what Jesus taught. And Paul will explain so much about what Jesus said. Simon Peter will say so much. And then when we come to the book of Revelation, it looks forward once again to the end times. So his triumphant entry. Jesus rode in on a donkey, not a war horse. There's a difference. Alright? I hope people know that difference. He came in peace. On bringing the donkey, the disciples put clo cloaks on it for Jesus to sit on. And as he enters Jerusalem, the people spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut palm branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And Matthew goes on to tell us that the crowds went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. In saying Hosanna, the crowd acknowledges that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah. All right? You understand that? 
the promised Messianic deliverer from the line of David whose kingdom will continue forever. So Jesus is referred to in scripture as a son of David. All right? In David's city he was born, in Bethlehem. Not all are like that with Jesus when he enters Jerusalem. The whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I was pleased when we sung that hymn which mentioned Nazareth. Do we know when Nazareth turns up again? Go right back to the start of Jesus' ministry. And what happens there? He talks with the disciples and one of the disciples runs off to call his brother. And in John... Chapter 1, verse 46. Nazareth, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from there? You remember that passage now? And Philip, his brother, says, come and see. So Jesus enters Jerusalem and by his action came as a king who comes to his people in love and in peace, and not as the conquering hero, the martial in martial splendour, whom the mob expected and waited. His entry to Jerusalem was one last appeal. In this action, Jesus came, as it were, with pleading hands outstretched, saying, even now, will you not take me as your king? Before the hatred of people engulfed him, once again, Jesus confronted the people with love's last invitation. And it's Luke that records for us, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. So here we see now that Luke is recognising who Jesus is. God in the flesh. Jerusalem would have none of it, choosing instead to violent, the violent course which led them to total destruction at the hands of the Romans in 70 AD. 
You can read all about this in history books, let alone the scriptures. Right? You can read so much. So it leads on to our second one. His actions in the temple. Within the temple, there was a sort of market where commercial activity enabled pilgrims from throughout the diaspora to participate in temple activities. And so, if you lived in Greece, you could come to Jerusalem and you could celebrate the Passover. Wherever you lived, from miles around, you could come and celebrate the Passover. But they had to exchange their own currency their own currency for temple currency and purchase animals and offer them for sacrifices. So everything was them. You buy my stuff and then you can sacrifice it. Not unlike some things of today, I tell you. you know? And I'm serious about that. You buy a Toyota... And if you go and get it serviced at some other dealer and something goes wrong and you know that something's wrong and I've, I've had this experience myself that you put a bearing in a wheel and it's not a Toyota branded one, it's from some other place, you will not get warranty. No, that's, that's not a standard part. That's not what Toyota put in. And, and there's other dealers like that that do this same thing. So the dealers operated in the outer court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles. Jews from abroad were not allowed to use their own currency to pay the annual temple dues. The money changers fixed a high rate of exchange doesn't happen today, does it? We've just spent two weeks in Bali and some places you can go to, some banks, and the exchange could be um, 90 cents and yet if you go to other places it could be $1.02 and so on. Just, some people, they really get at you. Sorry, I hope there's no bankers in the place. <laughs> but that's, that's just the way it is. That's society. We're all out for the quid. Right? Poor people who could only afford the cheapest sacrifice, usually two pigeons, were charged extortionate prices. <laughs> Incredible It was Joseph and Mary who had purchased pigeons when they visited the temple each Passover. However, the large prices charged, the priests turned <coughs> a blind eye. It happens in some churches today, I'm sorry to say. Usually, and I don't think it, I would, I would suggest it doesn't happen here, but usually in evangelical churches, you will find no raffles. People donate. They give. You know? 
Some churches have the raffles, even in the Anglican churches, and uh, some even the bingos, and so on, just to raise money for their churches. Throughout my ministry, I've hardly ever spoken on tithing. I don't really believe that I should speak on tithing because I like to say that if people have an association with Jesus in who he is and want to see his church expanded, they will pray and they will give so that mission fields can go out and the, the work of God can be expanded throughout the lands. Doesn't always happen and there are some times when you must talk on tithing. However, this incident illustrates the dishonesty, the hypocrisy and prejudice at the heart of Israel's religious life. It makes us see that a head-on clash between Jesus and the religious authorities is inevitable. And it happened time and time again throughout his ministry. The temple was a special sense, the place of God's presence. The closest that man could come to God himself. And if you recall the time when John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, entered the Holy of Holies before John was born and he was struck blind because he just didn't believe that it was possible and didn't receive his sight until John had been born. And so in Matthew it says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the branches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Yet the priest's indignation knows no bounds at the irreverence of Jesus. And once again, Matthew records for us, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They turn to Jesus and ask him if he hears what the children are saying. And once again, Matthew records for us. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, Lord, have called forth your praise? Jesus acknowledges the children's praise, and links it to Psalm 8. Once again, he's referring back to Scripture. 
And in Psalm 8 it says, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. The religious leaders should have known this psalm. It applied to such praise to God. Thus confirming Jesus as the divine Messiah. In them not doing so, Jesus left the city and went back to Bethany and lodged there. Which brings us to our third point, the cursing of the fig tree. It is the next morning and Jesus sets out once again to return to Jerusalem. But during his journey he becomes hungry. Seeing a fig tree on the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Since the fruit of the fig tree begins to appear about the same time as the leaves, or a little thereafter, the appearance of leaves in full bloom should have indicated that fruit in the form of green figs was already growing. And Jesus' actions here have a symbolic importance. They signify the hypocrisy of all who have the appearance that they are bearing fruit, but in fact they are not. Do you know what I'm talking about there? People who are Christian people who are called to their families, to their neighbours, and so on, to endeavour to bring them to Christ. And they're not doing a thing about it. All they do is attend church. Sunday after Sunday. When was the last time we spoke to our children about anything in church? When was the last time we spoke to our neighbours or friends of ours that we spoke? Are we endeavouring to spread the gospel? I'm not saying that you've all got to be ministers and evangelists and all that, but just something... Well, I can align with Stephen with the cancer because I've had it twice myself and I can only praise God for all the prayer and for his healing touch. And I told the doctors so in myself. I said, Doc, God's given you a great gift and I'm glad you're using it to help me. And I used to tell them, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I remember sitting in a, in a lying in a bed in the hospital at Port Macquarie over in the eastern states. And a chaplain came to me and said, and I was talking to him, and I said, I've been given a 60-40 a chance of living or dying. And that's what they said. I said, I've got a 60-40 chance of going to heaven 
or being with my wife and my, seeing my children and watching my grandchildren grow. I said, it's a win-win situation all over. And we had a great old laugh about that. But there's so many people that, oh, he's got cancer. Oh, it's sad, you know. Okay, be sad. But pray for them. And rejoice with them when they're finally healed. And if they're not healed and die, they are healed. You know what I'm saying there? Once again, I went to a church and some of the congregation had left before I came and the story was given. We had a young Christian there, a beautiful young girl who got sick. And we prayed and we prayed. Everyone prayed. And, we prayed, and she died. Huh, God wouldn't heal her and they left the church. And I said, what is wrong with these people? She is perfectly healed. She doesn't have to go through anything that we've got to put up with. Taxes and all this stuff, you know. She's healed. She's with God. But people don't realise this. And I know we mourn. And I've mourned the loss of my mother and my father, my wife's mother and, my fa- and her husband and so on. But we still praise God. We know where they are. Can you say that about friends that you know? You know, I have five sons. Four of them is an Anglican minister in Sydney and he's working with Anglicare in an aged care. He went to Castle Hill in his first uh, time over at Castle Hill. In one week, in one week, He buried eight people. He found it tough. It really was. And I'd find it tough. You know? But once again, I don't know if you know Castle Hill, uh, Mole Village, but it's a Christian, Anglican Christian uh, aged care centre. And they're beautiful Christians there, all that live there. And uh, he knew where they were going. But, you know, there's still the sadness that you've got to bear to be with these people. Goodness me, how did we get on to that topic? That's right. So there's little doubt that this action, usually as as it was, symbolises the coming judgement on faithless Israel, indicating the fate of the spiritually barren nation of Israel. And Matthew goes on to tell us, when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did this fig tree wither so quickly? And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do this, what was done to the fig tree, but also to that mountain, say to it, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. So what does this tell us about Jesus? Do we really recognise who Jesus is? 
how should we react to his actions in the temple? What of his unusual action towards the fig tree? Do you truthfully believe who Jesus is and align with Matthew at the beginning of his gospel when he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call him his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew thus presents the virgin birth of Jesus as God's miraculous fulfilment. This promise in the person of Jesus the Messiah, this brings further affirmation of the promise that God will be with his disciples in every age to empower them in their commission and make disciples of all nations. As Jesus once again refers to in the closing passages of Matthew's Gospel. I don't know that I'll read it because you all should know it. I would like to think. Do we know it? Any affirmations? You know it? Can you say it for me? <laughs> that does say it. Then Jesus said, I'll kind of have to read it out now, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you people, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What a comfort we have. Jesus will be with you wherever you go. You know, once again, in parish life, before that, going through college, we, the, the teachers used to say, they used to say, look, when you go out visiting, always take two people, and preferably a woman. So it's man and woman who go out. You, you should never go by yourself. You ever tried living in a parish and ministering to people? Sometimes you can't call on someone to go with you. You know, one o'clock in the morning you receive a phone call. Could you come to the hospital please? So-and-so has almost died. Come. So hang on, I'll just go and wake up Mrs. Jones. Oh, I hope there's no Mrs. Joneses or Mrs. Smiths in here, is there? Whatever, I'll call, I'm just calling names. Wake her up and we'll go to the hospital? No, I used to go and my friend and my partner was Jesus. And everywhere I've gone, I've gone hand in hand with Jesus. Would I do anything in front of Jesus to contradict any word that comes from the scriptures? No. I love him so much. So in his risen state, Jesus exercises absolute authority throughout heaven and earth. 
which shows his deity. His authority has been given by the Father. Jesus' ministry in Israel was to be be the beginning point of what would later be a proclamation of the gospel to all the people of the earth, including not only Jews, but also Gentiles. So let me finish off with words from John and Paul. When they say, and John, near the end of John's Gospel, he writes, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's referring to what he's written in his gospel. He would also be referring to scripture which he would have known and refers to in his gospel. So he's talking about the scriptures. And Paul says this in Romans Romans 10. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. No one else. No prophet that came out and introduced the JWs. No prophet that introduced the Mormons. Not Muhammad. None other than Jesus Christ. And he is the only way. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And they're words of Jesus, not mine. Have we understood those words? Sure, we love them. Love your enemies as Christ loved the church. And that's all we can do. Love, for, love them and pray with them and for them. Any questions? Anyone want to say anything? How to what? I love all people. Right? When you look up the Greek, you'll find different words for love. I love my wife in a different way than I love you. I love my children in a different way than I love my wife and you. And these three words are used in in Greek. Right? And I love everyone. How can I say that I hate you? You know, how could I say, and I'm going to pick on someone that you, you would probably detest, Idi Amin or Adolf Hitler. How can I say that I love him? I can say that I love him because Christ loved him and died for him. But he certainly didn't like what he did. And we need to learn the difference between love 
and like. You know, I've had, as I say, the five sons, they've, they're not perfect angels. They've done some things that have really upset me. Have I disowned them and stopped loving them? No. I continue to love them. I don't like the thing they broke or some of the things they may have said, but I still love them. Is that all right? Anyone have any troubles about that? Yep. Yep. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. We might say this little prayer to a child of a night time. And everyone thinks that Jesus is, he's a, he's a God of, God is a God of love. And Jesus loves everyone. He's a compassionate God. How much compassion did he show on the money changes? He was angry with them. How much wrath and anger did God show on Israel when they went and married other people? When he said, do not marry them. Do not interchange with them. God said to go out and destroy them. He knew what these people were like. They were people, something like Adolf Hitler type thing, you know? They were barbarians. But no, we know better than God. So we don't destroy them and we'll just go and marry some of their women. And then we'll start worshipping their idols. Is there any wonder that God gets angry with them and destroys them? I have no trouble reading the Old Testament. There's a series of books which start at um, uh, King Ahar and go through to um, uh, Manasseh, King Manasseh. And uh, some of the, the, the changes that, that happened during that time. I mean, how would you like your child taken from you and burnt? And this is what this king did. It was only Hezekiah that saw the wrong that his father had been doing that he changed things and turned back to the scriptures. And it was Manasseh, who was after King Hezekiah, that thought, oh, I don't want to do the things that he did. And he went back to worshipping idols again. And Israel was taken off into captivity. You know, he, knows, he knows what we want. He's a God of love. Yes, but he's a God of anger. And he was very angry with Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit that they shouldn't have eaten. Right? He was angry with them. And hence, 
We've suffered ever since. And we'll continue this side of heaven. It'll get easier. You're ready, aren't you? <laughs> Thank you, John. If you have any more questions for John, please. Please.